You're listening to audio from Citizens Church, located in Plano, Texas. For more information about this ministry or to give to this ministry, please visit citizenschurch.com. All right. Good morning. If you got your Bibles, turn me to Matthew chapter 5. We'll be in verse 1. Uh, so good to see you. Thank you for being here. Your presence here right now means that you love God more than the Dallas Cowboys, so that means a lot that you are here. If you don't know, they play at noon. Anyway, uh, we're starting a sermon series this morning on the Sermon on the Mount, and Melissa just read for us the one verse that we'll be in uh, this morning. It's Matthew 5, verse 1, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And so uh, even in just listening to the video that kind of launched us into the sermon series just now, you probably heard some words that are really familiar to you. Maybe, especially uh, if you've been in church for some time, you're going to have heard some of the teachings in this passage that are going to be familiar to you. I want to take some time this morning to just try to set us up well for this series. As we're beginning this series to understand what it is, that the, the, the waters that we're wading into, and then really uh, what we need to have in mind if we're going to hear the sermon the way that Jesus intended. And so uh, when Jesus preached this sermon, he was about 30 years old, give or take. His ministry had just begun. Uh, He had spent far more uh, of his years as a carpenter at this point than he had as a preacher. And so what had happened is, is around 30 years old, he launches his ministry. Uh, He is healing people. He is baptized in the Jordan River. He is tempted by Satan in the wilderness. Uh, And then there are uh, droves and droves of people that are coming to him. He has picked some of his disciples and kind of right at the cusp of the beginning of his ministry as uh, his ministry is launched as momentum is growing. He is north of the Sea of Galilee and he walks up a mountain which is actually more of a hill and he sits down and he looks around at 100 to 300 people or so and he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who mourn. And he goes on to say uh, all of these things. And so what's hard to overstate is how unimpressive the original surroundings of the sermon are. Uh, meaning he preaches this sermon and he preaches it. He's in the middle of nowhere. Uh, He is north of Galilee uh, on a hillside, uh, far away from kind of the hustle and bustle of the world, far away from any major city, far away even from kind of the small fishing villages that are right there. And he goes up on the side of the mountain uh, and it's just so obscure. The place is so obscure. It would be like if Jesus preached the sermon today, it would be like he went 15 miles north of Salina and preached it into a field, right? Nothing wrong with Salina. It's just it's out there, right? And so Jesus preaches this sermon and it's out there when he preaches it. And then the audience that he preaches it to are just by any cultural standard, just so unimpressive. Uh, they have no uh, societal standing. Uh, they have no cultural or religious power to speak of. They are mostly underprivileged. They are mostly poor. A lot of these people are following him because someone was sick that they knew that got healed or they themselves were sick and Jesus healed them and then they've stayed around long enough to just see what's gonna happen next and what Jesus is gonna do next. And there's, so, there's a buzz about Jesus, but most of the people at this point that are interested in his ministry, uh, just in cultural standards, are just not very impressive people. They're the kind of people that the world would say just don't matter too much. And so in an obscure place to mostly unimpressive people, Jesus sits down and he speaks these words that have become very common in so many ways. He speaks these words that have gone out into the world. And here's what's true. Whether you know this or not, um, 
the sermon that he preached in an obscure place, surrounded by unimpressive people, it has exploded. To, to put it in modern language, Jesus' sermon on the hill uh, has gone viral. And here's what I mean by that. I don't just mean that many Christians know it. Uh, even non-Christians who don't believe that Jesus is who he said he is, they have been impacted by this sermon. In fact, if you pay attention at all uh, to any kind of historical development of Europe, right, in the Roman Empire, post-Roman Empire, what historians would say is they're able to trace the impact that Jesus' teaching on this hill had in the development of the world as we know it. So non-Christian, right, uh, even uh, many of the words in the sermon are just part of our common vernacular, right, So whether someone believes in Jesus or not, most people, especially now, know that he said, don't judge people. And that comes from this sermon. Whether they're understanding that in the right context or not, I don't know. But they at least know that that part of the sermon was said or that God said that. Uh, There is a TED Talk that has been viewed almost a million times, and it's all about the golden rule. And all about the significance of the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. The significance of that rule in our climate, in our day. In studying for this sermon series, I watched a um, movie clip. It was a clip from the movie Friday Night Lights. And uh, in that clip, it's halftime of the state championship game. And the coach of the team that the movie is about, uh, it was played by Billy Bob Thornton. He walks into the locker room, the team is losing, and he delivers this moving halftime speech and it rouses kind of the troops and and everyone's real motivated to go out and try to win the game and at the end of his halftime speech everyone kneels down and recites the Lord's Prayer our Father in heaven hallowed be your name why I don't know the movie's not about God the movie was about football and maybe it's just kind of part of the culture that it was in but just think with me for a minute about how odd this is Think with me for a minute about just how unusual it is that the words of a first century Jewish prophet spoken 2,000 years ago in the middle of nowhere Galilee to a bunch of unimpressive people somehow made it into the climactic scene of a 2004 Hollywood movie that wasn't near as good as the TV show, right? So that impact from the words spoken on the side of the hill, like the sermon, what was spoken in obscurity has become familiar. And so here's what I would assume about you being here. Some of you I know really well, some of you I know, and some of you I've never met before. But what I would assume about most of you here is that you have some level of familiarity with these words. That even if on the bumper, or even if just some of the things I've quoted, more than likely you know some, if not all, of the things that Jesus spoke. And so all of that to say we are coming into this series. We're about to hear one of the greatest sermons ever preached, if not the greatest. And many of us are coming into that with a level of familiarity, a lot of knowledge. Most of you could probably recite the Lord's Prayer. And what you would think is we would think that that gives us an advantage, right? We would think that maybe that sets us up. That familiarity is gonna help us understand it. Uh, It's gonna help us hear it. And maybe that's true, but here's what I want you to hear. This sermon has not fared well throughout history in terms of it being understood rightly. Here's what John Stott said about the Sermon on the Mount. He's a preacher, uh, writer. He said, of all Jesus' teaching, it is the best known, the least understood, and the least obeyed. 
Scott McKnight, he wrote a commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, and he spent years researching the way that the sermon has impacted the church, the way that Christians have interpreted the sermon throughout the years. And he details all the major ways that it's been interpreted the last 1,500 years in different denominations, in different countries, on different continents. And here's his conclusion. It's sobering. The history of the impact of the Sermon on the Mount can largely be described in terms of an attempt to domesticate everything in it that's shocking and everything in it that's demanding and everything in it that's uncompromising and render it harmless. That is most of the reaction of what has happened to the words that were spoken on the hill 2,000 years ago as they've made their way out into the world. The majority of the hearers have responded by domesticating everything in it that's shocking and everything in it that's demanding and everything in it that's uncompromising to render it harmless, right? And by harmless, I take it to mean it has no teeth. It removes everything in it that could be a shock to the system or everything in it that could be demanding of the person and really everything in it that could bring lasting, meaningful change into our lives and we would be naive if the history if from the hill 2,000 years ago to right now where you're sitting if the majority of the reaction has been to misuse the sermon or to misunderstand the sermon or to miss the point of it altogether we would be naive to think that we're not susceptible to some of the same mistakes right and here's what I'm believing about you church and what I'm believing about us together is I'm believing that we want to hear these words as Jesus intended, amen? That we don't want to explain away what's difficult. We definitely don't want to misunderstand. We definitely don't want to miss the point. And so it is, on this very first day in the sermon, it is important that we go back to the hill. It's important that we go back to the obscure place, back among the unimpressive people, before the sermon shaped Europe, before the sermon was part of a TED Talk, before the sermon was some sort of movie clip, and to try and hear it with fresh ears and to read it with clear eyes and to approach it with honesty. Because here's what I am contending for with us together. We do not want to domesticate the words of Jesus. We are people who want to surrender to them. So two questions I want to lay over the series, and these two questions are going to be thread throughout our time together, however long we're in this series. And my hope behind these two questions is that these two questions would be mechanisms that keep us honest with what we hear and mechanisms that keep us accountable for taking Jesus at his word based on what we hear. And here are the two questions. Do you believe, and I'm asking you this this morning, church, do you believe the story that the sermon tells That's question one. Question two is, do you love the one preaching the sermon? Not me, Jesus. If you love me, that's okay too. But I mean Jesus. Do you believe the story the sermon tells? And do you love the one preaching the sermon? We're gonna explain these two questions and then we'll be done. The first question, do you believe the story the sermon tells? Let me frame it up like this. Um, This sermon is filled with a ton of really bad advice. This sermon is filled with a ton of things that just make absolutely no sense if this world is all that there is, right? And so love your enemies, that's really bad advice if this world is all that there is and justice is something that you have to seek for yourself. Um, Blessed are the persecuted is insane. It's out of touch if in a world that believes that comfort is the greatest good and pain is to be avoided. The persecuted aren't blessed, they're fools, right? Uh, blessed are those who mourn at best look at best that's insensitive 
if suffering has no purpose and if loss is meaningless. Don't be anxious. Really? Right now? Like that feels tone deaf in a world where there's no shortage of things to worry about. And so just, if you just isolate these statements and then you try to make sense of them in the world around us, they seem foolish. They seem like bad advice. They at least seem uh, like these little platitudes or these truths that we can ignore because they seem so irrelevant. But Jesus says all of those things and more. He says all of those things and then says things that are even more controversial in that, even more disruptive in that. So what does he know? Or rather, what does Jesus believe that makes those kinds of statements not only make sense, but calls us as his followers to obey and even embody his words? Here's what he believes. He believes in a a phrase that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He believes that there is a story happening in the world. It's the story that the Bible tells. And he believes as he's preaching this sermon that in his person, God is doing something to move that story towards its ending, to move that story towards its fulfillment. In chapter four of verse 17, before the sermon starts, it says this, from that time, Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the what? The kingdom of God is at hand. In chapter four, verse 23, he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogue, proclaiming the gospel of what? Of the kingdom. So before the sermon even starts, we know that Jesus has been preaching and he's preaching about the kingdom. It's his favorite topic. And then you get to the sermon and all throughout the sermon, it's all about the kingdom. He says, theirs is the kingdom. These are those who are least in the kingdom. When you pray, pray your kingdom come. Uh, At the very end of the sermon, it ends with a story about people who thought they were in the kingdom and who are actually not in the kingdom. Jesus' message on earth, the sermon he preaches, is the message of the kingdom of God. And so on the side of the hill 2,000 years ago in an obscure place around unimpressive people, he preaches a sermon that's all about the kingdom of heaven. It's all about the kingdom of God. The, the testament of the council of scripture would say this, that if Jesus was to come here next Sunday and preach here at Citizens Church, even with everything going on and all of the questions that you might have, here's what he'd preach. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. The sermon he preaches is the sermon about the kingdom of God. We name this series as it is. Those are the three words behind me. Um, because right in the middle of the sermon in chapter six, he prays, he teaches us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And those three words capture not just the point of the sermon, but it really captures the whole story of the Bible, what Jesus is doing in his life, in his presence. He believes he's bringing that story to a climax, that in him God is bringing the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. So I need to pause for a minute and ask a super important question that maybe you've already asked of yourself as you've heard me talking. What does that mean? What is the kingdom of God? When Jesus spoke to his original audience, those words had history uh, and those words had meaning that they would not have missed because of their story. I don't know that that's so true about us, that maybe for many of us, the idea of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, that's foreign to us. That's not the way we talk about the Bible or the way we talk about our relationship with God. And so what we could feel is we can feel right we could feel dropped right in the middle of a story that we're just unfamiliar with. It's almost like, you remember when you used to rent a movie from Blockbuster like a hundred years ago um, and you would rent that movie. It was, a, it was a cassette thing and you put it, I don't even remember what it's called, and you put it into a VCR and sometimes when you put it into the VCR and you press play, it would play right in the middle of the movie. That ever happened? Anyone? Most of you are younger. 
Some of you have no idea what I'm talking about, which is really crazy. Like, just stream it. It wasn't an option, okay? So you put the VCR in, it plays right in the middle of the movie because the person who rented the movie before you didn't rewind the movie all the way. And so you press play and you're right in the middle of all the action. You're right in the middle of the story. You're right in the middle of all the plot and the character development. And in a way, I don't want to do that this morning. I don't want to, uh, us to just drop right in the middle of a story that maybe we're unfamiliar with. Um, so instead of assuming we are all caught up on the kingdom story, what I want to do for just a minute is rewind a bit and understand what Jesus means. The Bible is one story. It is one storyline. It's so easy to believe the Bible is a collection of stories that have some sort of like pithy moral truth that we can live, like fight the Goliaths in your life, right? No, no, no. The Bible is one story from beginning to end. It has one main character and it's God. And you can trace the story of the Bible just by using these three words, as it is. Here is scene one of that story. In the beginning, God created heaven and earth and it was in the beginning in his perfect creation. It was on earth as it is in heaven. He made the heavens and the earth and they were completely united, right? They were joined together. They were distinct in ways, but there was no fracture between heaven and earth. There was no separation between heaven and earth. You had all of heaven pouring over all of earth. And so you had all of heaven's peace and all of heaven's joy and all of heaven's values. And most importantly, you had heaven's God on earth ruling and reigning and it was perfect it was on earth as it is in heaven and so marriage was on earth as it is in heaven and work was on earth as it is in heaven and worship was on earth as it is in heaven and all of creation was perfectly on earth as God intended because heaven and earth were united together as one and God places Adam and Eve in the middle of a garden and he rules over his creation but he shares his rule with them In chapter one, he says, uh, rule over the fish of the sea and rule over the birds of the sky and rule over creation. God establishes in the beginning the kingdom of God, which is heaven and earth united. And he invites humanity to be lowercase kings and queens of that kingdom. And that's how he set up his world. That's what perfection looked like. And so what you had is you had everywhere where heaven and earth were united, it's teeming with life. And so the Bible tells the story as in the beginning, it's a garden. Why? Because gardens grow and they flourish and they're green and they're full of life. So maybe you noticed walking in this morning that down the hallway, it's covered with plants and outside we got greenery and here on the stage, you have green behind me and then this beautiful art that Tiana had put together, just all of these signs of life and signs of growth, even the artwork for the sermon series, it's ethereal, it's bright, it's full of life. That's not a gimmick. That's not us trying to be relevant. That is visual reinforcement of this idea that when heaven and earth are united together, there's life. It's beautiful. It's abundant. And that is the world that we were made for. The the picturesque scene of creation is a garden filled with life and God, very God, walking in that garden, bringing life wherever he goes. Would you remember that picture, friends? God in the garden, walking, bringing life wherever he goes. That's scene one. Scene one of the story is this. It is on earth as it is in heaven. Something goes terribly wrong in scene two. Adam and Eve sin against God. They were tempted by Satan with the lie that they could be God and didn't need God. And listen, to try and be God on earth is to reject heaven on earth. 
and all that comes with it. And so to sin against God, when they rebel against God, they push heaven out of earth and all of its peace and all of its values and all of its joy because all of those things are from God and you don't get them without God. That's what temptation is. We don't have time, but that's what temptation is at its core. At its core, all temptation is the invitation to get the kingdom without the king. It's the invitation uh, to get heaven without God. And it's always an empty promise. Sin enters the world. And what happens is sin separates God and his people. Sin separates heaven and earth. And it is in a moment, in a tragic, devastating, pain-filled moment, it is no longer on earth as it is in heaven. Heaven and earth are separated. Relationship with God is no longer on earth as it is in heaven. Marriage is no longer on earth as it is in heaven. Work, worship, creation. There is now fracture. Creation is broken. Humanity is broken. Death enters the world because sin, friends, hear me, sin separated heaven and earth. They were meant to be together and sin separated them. That's what's wrong with the world. That's what's wrong with the world. Look, even if we just look around right now, On earth, it's viruses, and on earth, it's violence, and on earth, it's racism, and on earth, it's polarizing politicians and culture wars and fatherless kids and depression and disease and fear and failure and sin and shame, and there's none of that in heaven. There's none of that in heaven. And so what we live in is we live in a world in the state of the world is as it is because it was made to be united with heaven and we are reeling from heaven's absence. We need God. We miss God. Scene two, it is not on earth as it is in heaven. Earth crumbles under heaven's absence. Earth misses God. God in his kindness because he's benevolent and just and beautiful and good and full of love he immediately begins working to restore what's been separated. We don't have time, but the story of the Old Testament follows God's promise to a man from Genesis 12 all the way to Jesus. follows God's promise to a man and his family, a promise of how he will restore the world to the way it was. And there are moments in that story where heaven touches earth again. That's what the temple's all about. That's why it says the train of God's robe fills the temple with glory. The temple is this space in time where temporarily heaven and earth are reunited right in that one space. And God saves and God rescues, but all of that, the entire story of the Old Testament, it looks forward to, it prepares the world for, it points towards Jesus and our need for Jesus. And so if scene one is on earth as it is in heaven, scene two is it's no longer on earth as it is in heaven and earth needs and misses what we were made for. We don't exist in because heaven and earth are separated. When Jesus comes on the scene and he says, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, what does he mean? When he comes on and says, repent, the kingdom of God is among you. He is telling the story, preparing the world, saying about himself that in his life, in his ministry, he's going to bring back to the world what it's missing. That he is going to reunite heaven and earth. He's going to reunite creation and God. Hear me, do you, do you pay attention to what he doesn't say? What he doesn't say in his life and in his ministry. What he doesn't promise is he doesn't say, I'm gonna form a group of people to create better systems for the world. He doesn't say we just need better education, we need political reform, right? All of that, I believe, in the Christian story has its place, but it only has its place in the Christian story. But what Jesus says is he's going to bring heaven back to earth because if we are trying to get back to as it is, we don't need a better version of what the world can provide. We need heaven back. 
We need the rule and reign of God, something outside of the world to heal the world. He also, hear me, he also doesn't come in and say this, which is a huge misunderstanding in popular Christianity. He doesn't come in and say, hey, let's get out of here. Let's all leave this place and let's all get up to heaven together. No, I've said it before. We'll say it over and again. The movement of the story of the Bible is not getting from earth to heaven. It's heaven coming to earth. And that's what Jesus brings. Because he is in himself, friends. Jesus is in himself the perfect union of heaven and earth. He is God in the flesh. He is, if you will, the essence of heaven wrapped in earth and what you see it's beautiful what you see everywhere he goes is he leaves behind these little pockets on earth as it is in heaven everywhere he goes he is riding what's wrong he is uniting heaven and earth together and so he he sees in his ministry all of the brokenness in the world there's no blindness in heaven And so he heals the blind man on earth. There's no storms in heaven, so he calms the sea on earth. There's no hunger in heaven, so he feeds the 5,000 on earth. Everyone in heaven can walk. And so he tells the crippled man to get up on earth. There's no hypocrisy in heaven, so he opposes the religious leaders on earth. There is no idolatry in heaven, so when tempted to betray God, he says, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only on earth. There's no shame in heaven, so he lifts the face of the woman caught in adultery on earth. He is in his life a walking picture of what the world was meant to be. He is in his person, heaven and earth together, offering a picture to the world of the life that you and I were made for and the life that you and I were always intended to live in the world that this world aches to return Jesus brings he is in his life and there's no sin in heaven and that's a problem for you it's a problem for me it means that I am unfit for the world that I was made for that you are you are in your sin in your idolatry in your rebellion you are unfit for the world that you were made for and so here's what Jesus does fully god fully man a walking portrait of heaven and earth he lays down his life he dies on a cross he descends from heaven to earth takes on flesh and then descends below the earth in death because god did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but that through him the world would be saved And he did not bring heaven back to earth in a way that crushed the earth. He could have. God would have been completely holy and completely right and completely just, just to rid the world of all of us and to rescue back the heaven that we had shoved out in our rebellion. But God did not bring heaven back to earth in a way that crushed the earth. He came to be crushed. So that sinner like me and sinner like you, unfit for the world we were made for, could be invited in. And he did that by dying for our sin, but not staying dead. Jesus, hear me. Jesus is buried in a tomb in the middle of a garden. And in the grave, he reaches right into the heart of the kingdom of darkness. He grabs death by the throat. He rises in victory over sin and he rises in victory over death. It could not hold him. And a resurrected Jesus, fully God and fully man, walks out of the grave into what? A garden. And once again, you have God walking in the garden on earth as it is in heaven, bringing life wherever he goes, inviting life wherever he goes, looking at anyone who would respond in repentance and faith and saying, follow me, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You can live right now on earth as it is in heaven. That's the scene right now. 
Scene three in the story is the scene that you live in, friend. It's the scene that you live in, church. If it was on earth as it is in heaven in the beginning and then in scene two, it's no longer on earth as it is in heaven. We live in the other side of the resurrection looking forward to Jesus' return and it is and not yet on earth as it is in heaven. I've lived in Texas my whole life and every summer I have the exact same experience. June comes and it's hot. It's super hot. And I will think, you know what? This is hot, but it's not unbearable. So maybe, just maybe, this summer is going to be different than every other summer. And then July comes, and I'll think, man, how in the world are we going to get through this? And then August comes, and I'll think, why do we live here? Like, why does anyone live here? Like, I'll come inside. I'll walk in the front door, and my kids are like, Dad, did you just work out? And I'm like, no, I just went to get the mail. It's just that hot outside. Like, that's where we live. And then by the end of August, beginning of September, I'm I'm praying, asking God to call me to plant a church in Hawaii. I'm like, I just can't do this anymore. And then something always happens. Every year, usually in September, you wake up and the cold front came in. And by cold front, I mean it's 80 degrees, right? No, I think a couple weeks ago I woke up and it was maybe mid-60s. And you walk outside and you're like, oh, thank God. It's almost cold enough to drink your morning coffee outside, right? And here's what's exciting about that is it's not just that it's cold, it means something. When the 60 degree weather comes in, it was like that this morning, I think driving here, it was like 55 degrees this morning, something like that. Um, When that cold, when that original kind of burst of cold air comes, it means the seasons are changing. It means fall is coming. And it's still hot and there's still so much of summer But you can't ignore that first kind of burst of fall air. What happened is this fall, just for a moment, interrupted summer. And interrupted summer in a way that says the seasons are changing. When Jesus rose from the dead, heaven interrupts earth. The kingdom returns. Heaven and earth reunite in part. His resurrection, his ministry, his pronouncement that the kingdom is at hand is a taste of the season that's coming and is. Look, yes, it's still not as it is in heaven, but the seasons are changing. You can look around, especially now, and you can look and you can see all of the ways that heaven, or that earth still misses heaven, and all of the ways that it's still very broken, and all of the ways that it needs to be made right, and it won't be completed until the last scene when Jesus returns, and it is completely on earth as it is in heaven. In fact, there's a new heavens and a new earth, and God is present again. His glory fills all of the earth, and that is coming, and we're waiting in so many ways for that, but there are so many ways ways in which it's already here. Friend, all of your sins are forgiven. All of your sins are forgiven. That because of Jesus, because he defeated death, that God offers to you all of the ways that your life fails to meet up to the sermon that Jesus preaches have been forgiven. All of the ways your life will continue to fail to meet up to the sermon that Jesus preaches, all of that has been forgiven for all those who trust in him, who believe he died in our place, rose in victory over the death that we deserve. And so right now what you have is complete acceptance with your creator. You have a relationship with God that is unmarred by your failures and is defined by the love and the grace that he has extended to you through Jesus. And that kind of relationship between humanity and creator has not existed since the beginning. It has not existed since Eden. And so there is in your, just in your salvation, there's a little peace on earth 
as it is in heaven. And we, as we live our lives, living in the scene where it is and it's not yet on earth as it is in heaven, we with our worship and we with our acts of justice tell the world and show in and through our lives that we believe the season's changing. A new season is coming. What does it look like to live in that story? This is the story the sermon tells and that is the story the sermon will ask of you over and again. Do you believe that story because the sermon only makes sense in the context of that kind of story what does it look like to live that what does it look like to be in between the seasons what marks the life of the one who lives on earth as it is in heaven blessed are the poor in spirit blessed are the meek when you pray don't pray to be seen by others pray in hiding don't judge people with a judgment that's a condemning kind of judgment hear the words of Jesus and build your life on them the sermon is the picture the instruction of what it looks like friends look right at me of what it looks like for you to live faithfully in that scene and for you to live faithfully in that story to obey these words is to orient our life around Jesus's teaching and to be in a small incomplete and beautiful way a picture on earth of what it looks like in heaven and so the question that will will lay over and over and over again is do you believe that story and and in so many ways what that will mean is it will call us to cast off the stories that we maybe believe even unintentionally Next week, we'll talk about how it's a call over and again to cast off the story of individualism and cast off the story of progressivism and even cast off the story of nationalism, which so pervades our culture right now in the political climate, that Jesus's words are going to take root in your life by confronting over and again, do you believe this is true? Do you believe this is the world that you live in? Do you believe that the story that Jesus is bringing is real in your life? And then second question, which don't worry, you won't spend near as much time on. Do you love the one who preached the sermon? The things that Jesus asks, the things that Jesus says, it, it, it's going to create in your mind somewhat of a who does he think he is response, especially as he starts talking about the issues of our heart. Do you love him? My sophomore year of high school, I got in a small car wreck Uh, I was relatively okay. My life wasn't in danger or anything like that. But I hit the dashboard and I had a ton of pain in my chest and some pain uh, kind of in my side. Uh, The wreck was on a Friday and I couldn't get into the doctor until Monday. And so um, I made an appointment with the doctor Monday and on Sunday I went to church and I was in a bit of pain, uh, quite quite a bit of pain. My concern though was that football season started in two weeks. We were right in the middle of two days. And I didn't want to miss any games. I didn't want to miss any football. And so I was eager to hear what the doctor had to say because I was worried about what it meant for me playing football. In fact, on Sunday, I ran into my coach at church and I told him, I was like, hey man, I got in a wreck and I'm probably gonna to have to miss some games. And he was worried, he was crushed. He looked at me and he was like, hey, uh, tell me your name again. And he's so funny. So um, I was eager to get to the doctor the next day. And so church ended and I'm trying to make my way out. And uh, a guy comes up to me and he said, hey, I heard you got in a wreck. And I said, yeah. I didn't know who he was. He was a stranger to me, but that wasn't unusual. It was a small country town, small Baptist church. I was the preacher's kid, so everyone knew everything about my life, which was awesome. So um, he came up to me and he's like, hey, I heard you got in a wreck. And I said, yeah. Uh, And then he started asking me a bunch of questions. He said, where is the pain? Does it hurt when you breathe? Does it hurt when you lift your arm, right? And um, I was polite but I was really annoyed. I did not want to talk to this stranger. 
I didn't want to answer his questions. And so I answered really short, like really brief, was trying to exit the door. And he said, hey, here's what I think happened. You know, you've got your sternum's right here and you've got ribs right here. There's cartilage in between your sternum and your ribs. And I think you just tore some of that. I was like, great, thanks, God bless. And I left. The next day, I go to the doctor's office. The nurse comes in, said the doctor will be with you shortly. And five minutes later, the doctor walks in and it's the stranger from church. It's the guy from the day before. And I was embarrassed. He knew. I did not try to hide how uh, the day before how short I was being. And so I was a bit embarrassed. And after we got through that, we had the exact same conversation. He said, hey, I heard you got in a wreck. Does it hurt when you lift your arm? Does it hurt when you breathe? Tell me about the pain. I answered all of his questions. And he said, hey, here's what I think happened. You've got your sternum right here. You've got your ribs right here. There's cartilage in between. And I think you tore some of that. And then he told me what to do and told me kind of how long recovery would be. And in reflecting on that, here's what was true. We had the exact same conversation on Monday that we had on Sunday. And I heard that conversation completely different on Monday. I responded to that conversation completely different on Monday. I listened, hung on every word Monday. What was the difference between Sunday and Monday? On Monday, I knew who I was talking to. On Monday, the words that were being spoken mattered because I knew who was talking. I hung on every word because I knew the identity of the person who was speaking to me. The words of the Sermon on the Mount matter because of who spoke them. The identity of the one who preached the sermon matters. If it's anyone else, it's empty. If it's anyone else, it's useless. But it's Jesus. He's God in the flesh. He's the king of the kingdom. He's the savior. And so to hear his words is to be drawn in to what he has done for you, invited in to grow in knowledge of him and love for him as a people who believe what he says because it matters to us who he is. And it matters what he says because of what we believe about who he is. And what this sermon will do over and again is it will test that. It will, it will force us to ask honest questions about that and about him. And it will make us decide if it's true that we don't want to domesticate his words, but we want to surrender to them. There's two concerns I have coming into this sermon series, just knowing how often Jesus' words land in wrong places. One concern I have is that we would turn his words into law. That as we walk through the sermon, it would become in our lives a new kind of legalism that we try and keep outside of relationship with Jesus. That we uh, take the sermon, but we leave Jesus behind and then we go out and we kind of try to build a righteousness of our own. And that's not what Jesus offers, friend. What Jesus offers is he offers relationship with him. He offers an honest keeping of his word, a grace-filled command to obey his word, but it's in the context of relationship with him. The other error, the other fear I have is that we would respond by trying to get Jesus and leave the sermon behind. Let me tell you, friends, much of church history believes about Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Much of church history believes about the words spoken on the hill 2,000 years ago, believes that its only purpose is to show us how impossible it is to live the life that God expects. And so all it does is show us our need for grace, that that's it. And so if that's true, once we become Christians, the sermon doesn't matter anymore. These words don't matter anymore. It served its purpose of showing us our need for Jesus. And now that we are Christians, now that we have our sins forgiven, we can leave it behind. And listen, Jesus, he means what he says. It's the only way I know to say it. He means 
what we are hearing is yes, a picture of the life that left to ourselves we can't live. Yes, it's going to be a reminder over and again of the grace we need, but it also is a picture of what it looks like to live out of what we say we believe, friends. Yes, we'll fail, but that's not the point. The point is Jesus is king. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And how could we live any other way or pursue any other life? How could we respond any differently if Jesus is the one in the room who's the expert on life? If Jesus is the one in the room who commands the authority, then we will hear his words and they will matter to us because of who he is and who's speaking them. Look, do you love the one who preached the sermon? Do you love the one who says these words? It'll happen over and again that we come back to that, especially as it gets intrusive. Here's what will happen. Jesus is gonna talk to us about the anger that exists in our hearts. Jesus is gonna talk to us about some things about our past that are embarrassing. Jesus is gonna talk to us about the lust that's in our heart and the idolatry that's in our heart. And Jesus is going to ask us to think about those relationships that are most difficult for us, that are most fraught with conflict, that are most fraught with shame and regret and anger. And he's gonna ask about us that those relationships be marked by love. And in hearing him get that intrusive into our lives, the impulse is going to be, who does he think he is? And that'll translate into a question. Who do you think he is? Because how you answer that question is the litmus test for whether you respond faithfully to these words or whether we domesticate them to make them more palpable. Friends, do you believe the story the sermon tells? Do you love the one who preached the sermon? I want to end a bit different this morning. I want to end by inviting you into something that um, one of my, um, one of the things that I really care about and one of the things that I'm so hopeful for about our church uh, is that what happens on a Sunday morning wouldn't just stay on a Sunday morning. That as we worship God together, as we take communion together, as we consider God's word together, that in a sense, Sunday morning would, would grow feet and would walk into our Monday and walk into the rest of our week. And, and we've talked about this a lot lately. We need more in our lives if we're going to follow Jesus courageously, especially in this controversial, difficult climate. It's going to require more time with God than just the hour that we get every Sunday or for some, the hour that we get once a month on a Sunday. We are inundated with all kinds of messages, especially now we're hearing all different kinds of, you know the story that you're not hearing tomorrow? The story of heaven on earth. The messages surrounding you the rest of the week are not the messages that we are looked at. The words that you're gonna be inundated with are not the words of Jesus. And so we are at a disadvantage trying to follow this because so often the amount of time that we spend with what we say is most important is so disproportionate to what our lives actually look like and where our time actually goes. That's not to guilt. It's to simply be honest about some of our challenges. And here's what I want to invite. If you think about, if we go back to the hill, obscure place, unimpressive people, Jesus preaches this sermon, and then what happens? They walk down the hill with him. Many of them invited to remain with him, invited to remain in his presence man, he said something that was really confusing or he said something that was really controversial. I wonder what he means by that. They just go up and ask him. I've, I've been there. We were there last March. In fact, Melissa, who read our, uh, our first verse from chapter five, uh, we were uh, in Israel with our church. She opened up the Bible in the place where Jesus preached this sermon and she, pre- and she read the Sermon on the Mount. She read verse, chapters five, six, and seven. It was maybe 30 minutes it took. And then afterwards, we all walked down the hill together to go to the next place. And that's what would have happened 2,000 years ago, that Jesus would have preached these words and then they would have remained together in friend. It looks different for us, for sure. 
but we have the same invitation. Jesus has ascended to the right hand of God, but he's promised by the Spirit, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And if we are going to believe the story the sermon tells, and if we are going to love the one who preached the sermon, it's going to happen by spending time with him, by remaining in his presence. Maybe you need help knowing what that looks like. Let me offer some help. We have put together a guide. We're just calling it the As It Is Practices Guide. It's on our website. You can go right now and find it on your phone when you get home. You can, don't do it now. But you could go on our website right now and you could access it. And it's just three things that I'm inviting our church into Three things that I'm asking us to carve into our lives to love the one who preached the sermon. Morning prayer, every morning, right when you wake up, pray. For some of you, that means you're gonna have 30 seconds before a kid jumps on you, that's okay. But morning prayer, right in the middle. Evening silence, that in the evening, you're sitting still and quiet, believing that even in your stillness, even in not being productive, you're loved by the God who preached the sermon. Wednesday fast, Maybe that's from lunch every Wednesday. Maybe you are in a place where you can fast from all food on a Wednesday, but we are going to intentionally abstain from food and in our hunger be reminded how hungry this world is for heaven. Be reminded how hungry this world is for God. Morning prayer, evening silence, Wednesday fast. The guide is simple. It's maybe two pages. It's high level offered some helps in there. If you've never done anything like this before, wanna help you get started in spending time with Jesus outside of Sunday. And, And here's what I know to be true, friends. I know that this is a season in life where there are many added burdens and I am not trying to add another. I am not hoping, I'm not intending in any way for this to be another burden on a busy plate. My earnest hope would be that as we hear the words of Jesus together every Sunday, as we hear the story that he tells us what life in this scene looks like, that we would love him, that we would grow in our love for him. And I just know that that's going to be truncated, that's going to be limited unless we make time for him every day throughout the week. And here's what I I know to be true. And here's what I hope we discover together. That when you pray in the morning, when you sit in silence in the evening, maybe when you fast on Wednesday, you are spending time not only with the one who preached the sermon, but with the one who lived it. What's so astounding about Jesus, what's so wonderful about Jesus is he, in a word, practices what he preached. Jesus preaches a sermon and then lives the life who loved their enemies like Jesus did, that while we were enemies, he dies for us so that enemies and sinners could become children of God, citizens in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus would pull away and he would pray to God in quiet where no one could see him and they'd have to go find him looking for him because he wanted to in secret commune with God. He treated others the way that he wanted them to treat him. Jesus was the one who was blessed in persecution. Jesus was meek. Jesus was one who was courageous, who comforted the mourners. And so we are spending time with the one not just who preached the sermon but whose life offers to us a model of what it looks like to live and it's a beautiful courageous righteous life 2,000 years ago a Jewish prophet north of Galilee walked up a mountain that's more of a hill in the middle of nowhere surrounded by unimpressive people he sat down he opened his mouth he preached a sermon and from that place that sermon went out into the world and it made its way to us and it's going to tell us what it looks like to live on earth as it is in heaven it's going to draw us into a deeper love for the one who preached the sermon and i am so hopeful for what that will look like in our hearts in our homes in our church in our city and in our world 
Father, we love you. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your grace. I thank you, God, that you have been so kind to us. I thank you that you have not left us to wonder about the story of the world or to wonder about what it looks like to try to navigate a complicated world, but you not only have given us instruction and teaching, but you have modeled it in a life that is so selfless and filled with love. And so I I pray, God, I I guess just right now in my own heart, there's a bit of of trepidation and there will continue to be a bit of trepidation that that there was an offering that was in balance, maybe a a high call to obedience that missed the grace that there is for failures. And so I just trust you in this moment, Holy Spirit, that you would appropriate that message in a way that's consistent with your heart and consistent with your character, oh God. You love us, you love us. You preach a sermon that is for us, but you do not expect of us to keep it without you. Would we be present with you? And I don't know the stories, and I don't know where all of it lands. I know that you do, God, but even if in this sermon series, Lord, for some, what begins to happen in our lives is we welcome habits into our lives, and for some, this is going to be the beginning of waking up every morning and praying to you for the first time in their life. It's going to be the beginning of of learning how to sit in silence and to know that in our absence of words, Jesus, you speak over us. Words of advocacy and intercession and hope and gospel and truth and salvation. Lord, I just pray that you would welcome the offering. I pray that you would welcome, God, our hearts, that you would redeem, that you, God, would, would... would be present among us in a way that we look at what you're doing and we say, this is not something that we can manufacture on our own, but you're calling us to be a prophetic people, calling us to be a different people, calling us to be the people that live now on earth as a foretaste of what heaven will look like. We love you and we thank you. Amen.